0: So last time we just, we started with this topic, which is called Elu V'Eilu Divul Chayim, And I just want you to all to know something. Let's see if I can share this. Yes, yes. The, the lecture last weekend, this week, I actually stole from a book. So I did want to admit that. I, I don't want anybody to afterwards uh, to say, oh, I fooled you somewhat. O- although the truth is I did write the book. So therefore I think I am allowed to... Uh, To borrow from it occasionally, if you want, I just put it on the screen. You can see it. It's called The Crowns and the Letters. Beautiful cover. And Essays on Like a Down the lives of the Sages. Right now, it's on uh, Amazon at 70% off. So if any of you are interested, you can find it. Again, The Crowns and the Letters. And that's from the American store. And you, as you all know, I'm sure, that if you order something for $49, then you can get free shipping. So you just have to waste another $30 or something, and then you can get free shipping. If you want suggestions, I can do that after class. So let us now uh, continue. What I presented last time was, on the one hand, what I would call the popular explanation of what Aluba elu means. And that's the way that it's used. It's used by lots and lots of people this way. Essentially, that Judaism has many, many opinions, and there's no real one right opinion. Although those two points I just now made may not necessarily have to go together, but there's two. But there are multiple opinions. And the more radical way of saying this is what we got to see last week was the way the Ritva cited it. And I'm not going to go into the whole lecture all over again, but we did see that the idea was all the way back that God taught things in multiple ways. So to pause, yes, there is a teaching that God taught things in multiple ways. The question is, what does it mean? And then the question is, what does that have to do with our teaching? Because it's not organically connected to our teaching. Rather, our teaching, we started with a teaching where Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai argued for an excessive amount of time. And I'll explain the use of my word excessive in a moment. So over here, if we take a look at the original source, it's Amr Rabbi Abba Amr Shmuel. For three years, the schools of Shammai and Hillel argued, One side said, the law is according to us. While Lelu Amru on the other side said, The law is according to us. A voice came out of heaven and said to them, Elu These and these. Now, the way that I originally translated this was these and these are the words of the living God, Eluve Elu, Elukim hillel, And the law is according to Hillel. Now, I what I mentioned then is that two questions come out immediately. And really a third. A third is why does this question, why does this discussion go on for so long it is not resolved? I'm, I'm going to pause and come back to that in a moment. The second question is: how is it possible to say that both these and these are the words of the living God. And finally, if both these and these are the words of the living God, then what makes the school of Hillel better than the school of Shammai? Why is the law according to them? Of those three questions, the only one which the Gemara asks is the third one, if Elu of Elu, why is the law, in fact, like the school of Hillel? Now, going back to my translation, what I suggested last time is that it's quite possible and I think probable that the proper translation really should be of these and these, instead of saying, are the words of the living God, which would imply that God said both, which then leads us to a problem, what exactly did God teach Moshe, but rather to say that would mean these and these are the living words of God. And therefore, this means that the word of God is dynamic. God taught perhaps one thing or perhaps in this context only taught principles. And those principles were then applied by different rabbis in different ways. So Again, I want to pause here for a moment to make sure that this is very clear, that the one way of looking at this whole issue is that God taught Moshe multiple and therefore confusing teachings. And one of the things that we saw last time is that we all know whether, you know, the question is where's the limit? We all know there's limits to this, which means if a rabbi gets up and says that pork chops are kosher, and uh, not artificial and out in the laboratory, and no, pork chops are kosher, I think all of us are going to say, well, there's a problem with that, because the Torah says it's not. So therefore, can somebody actually get up and say something against the Torah? Now, the argument that these, these are the words of the living God, and God's taught multiple things, even contradictory things, would actually lead you to a conclusion that pork chops are kosher, and we know that's impossible, which is one of the difficulties you had with that entire approach. What we came to learn, and again, all this is still review, what we came to learn last time is that the Rishalmi actually rejected that kind of approach and said, no, there are things that if somebody is creative or sufficiently creative or creative in a way that we have no right to be creative, then that person has no right to give rulings about Jewish law. There's limits to what somebody can say. It's not that Judaism can take all kinds of things. By the way, this doesn't mean that we are monolithic. It doesn't mean that we only have one approach. It doesn't mean there's only one way to look at Judaism. But on the other hand, Is there an unlimited way of looking at Judaism? And that's exactly what Roshami said. No, that's really not the case. And in fact, it went so far as to say that if there's an individual who rules in a way which is really you know, I'm going to use that word again, creative. He uses, a, like, he, he finds a hundred different proofs that something which is Tameh, and he argues that it's something which is impure, argues that it's pure. Dushami says that person cannot rule in Jewish law, and that person is cut off from Sinai. So the exact opposite of what we would call a misorah, and that is so important to us. I'm a of Moshe Mi Sinai. This person is cut off from Sinai because he's saying something which could not have been said by Sinai, which means Sinai's tradition does not tolerate an every and any possibility. And again, to be very, very clear now, rather, and this was the direction that we saw last time in Urbainu Peretz, and later we came to understand it's Rashi as well, rather, new cases emerge. And when new cases emerge, we don't necessarily have a tradition on them. And in those cases, I can say Eluva Elu, if the person uses Torah true principles, and here I'm being perhaps a little evasive, what exactly is a Torah true principle, but I'll say it again, a new case where we don't have a tradition and the per and two sides argue, and both sides put forth the you know a fair argument that can become a part of the Jewish tradition. I was invited to speak next week in a in a community in America, so I asked, "Is there any particular topic you want me to talk about?" So, of all topics, I'm not going to let you guess which one because you're not going to guess. Of all topics in the world, one of the topics they want me to talk about is making coffee on Shabbat. Okay, so let's even go a little bit further to say, if I have ground coffee, right, ground roast coffee, not instant, am I allowed to make this on Shabbat? So some of you may have been brought up to think, well, no, you can't. And why can't you? Well, you can't because you'll be cooking it. And when you cook it, there's a problem which is called Bishrach HaBishel. And indeed, there is a rabbi who made that argument. And by the way, completely minority argument, even though it's mentioned in the Ramah. But there are others who argue that no, that principle, which may exist, doesn't exist at all by the laws of Shabbat. Only exists by the laws of Pesach, by the Korban Pesach. Now, the reason I'm bringing this as an example is that the principle, and and by the way, the question is the Korban Pesach must be roasted. Then the Gemara raises a question What if I cooked it, then roasted it? What if I roasted it, then cooked it? And the answer is the Torah says, Roasted, do not cook it. So if I cook it, then I broke Torah law. And it says, But is there such a thing as cooking after roasting? Yeah. Because the Torah says, do not cook it. I don't care if it's before roasting or after roasting, and therefore I have this principle. So that's a Torah principle, and that's a true Torah principle. Now the question becomes, how far laterally can, can I or should I apply it? So one rabbi gets up and says, you know what? I think you should apply this laws of Shabbat. And even if something was cooked before or roasted before, and if I cook it now, then it is considered to be cooking all over again because there is such a concept of cooking after something was roasted. Now, okay, that's a fair analogy. Question is, is it true or not? But what the person did is he took something from one case and he applied it to another case. Now, the reality is most Rishonim don't agree with this. The Talmud doesn't bring that example. Most Rishonim don't think that that's an accurate example. But some say, you know what, there's rules of of Shabbat are pretty stringent, so maybe we should be careful for such things. Now, that is a typical and and a wonderful type of an application of Jewish law. A new case has come up, and now what principle do I apply? Do I move laterally from Pesach over here to principles of Shabbat, or do I not? And again, I can go into a little bit more depth if I needed to, to explain why yes and why no, and why maybe the chadchil, or why medievet, and why maybe a klisheni, or even a klishlishi, or especially a cliche, she should completely solve the problem in such cases. And I say that now, having Rav Moshe Feinstein and ignoring the chazonish, and I understand that if anyone's going to want to call me on that. But that's a very fair and typical type of way of making an application of a new case. Question is, at the end, is it a legitimate application? Yes. Is it a true application? Okay. So various posts, will have to make that decision. But that's, that's a wonderful type of, a, of an argument. And again, argue, arguably such a case didn't exist. Now, after saying all of this, I want to now backtrack and, uh, and start all over again. And I'm going to say something which at first is going to sound to some of us maybe a, a little bit jarring, and I will defend it. And that is as follows. As far as I can tell, the concept of Eilu ve'elu chayim, in any way that you want to take it, in the more radical way, which God said everything, or the less radical way that we can make applications, again, the difference would be, are both sides true or both sides legitimate? What I want to say now is that the concept of utilizing Eilu elu in the deciding of Jewish law is actually counter to Jewish law absolutely against, the Torah is absolutely against it. Now, part of probably what you're arguing, what you're thinking of is, well, if that's the case, then why does the Talmud say, that's a fair question. Secondly, what you may be thinking is, why didn't I do these two classes in, in the inverse order, and then I could have saved our Saved you a lot of time and we wouldn't have to do the first class because I'm claiming now that it's completely illegitimate. Now, what some of you may be wondering is how I can say such a thing. And I'll tell you exactly how I can say such a thing because the Taurus says such a thing. And, and again, I, I'm going to explain and uh, maybe some of you will think this is a little nuanced. I don't even think it's nuanced. I think it's really quite clear, but we're going to have to now skip down a little bit through our sources and go down to. Dvarim. <clears throat> this is chapter 17 in Sefer Dvarim, Deuteronomy. And it says, what do you do when you're confused? What do you do when you don't know the law? Do you then say, or do you do something else? When something escapes you, and you don't know what to do in terms of law, dealing with ritual law, dealing with other types of arguments which exist in your cities, what do you do? Vakamta, you get up. Valita You get up and you travel to the place that God chose. Meaning, you go up to the Temple Mount, which is where the Sanhedrin sat. You go to the judges who were made up of preferably of Kohanim and levim, the ones who live in your day. and you ask of them. V'egidin et and they're going to inform you and tell you what the law is. And you will act upon what they tell you. From that particular place. Be very careful and follow what they tell you. Based on the Torah that they instruct you thereof. And the legal decisions they give you. And don't deviate from what they say one way or the other. So I, 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 I want to start all over again. So Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai have an argument, and Beit Shammai have an argument. Sh- and Beit Shammai have an argument. Why in the world? And this is one of the questions that I really didn't raise last time, or if I did, I glossed over it. Why is this question going on for so long? We 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 have a an apparatus. God gave us a way of solving problems. The way that you solve problems is, is that you present it to the court court, and then the court and the elders in Jerusalem at seventy elders approximately, and they would then consider the law, and they would vote on the law. I mean, if this is not all that clear, I want to show you the Mishnah, and what's going to be interesting about the Mishnah is that as I read it, you're suddenly going to realize that this Mishnah is actually quite related to the topic of Eluva Elu, and you're going to see that on a linguistic sense, aside from it being related in terms of a thematic sense. So now let's proceed and let's take a look. The here is what the Breitah teaches. And you know what? Before I read the Breitah, I, I, I'm going to do it in, in the inverse way. I'm going to read the Rambam first, and then we'll go backwards. The Rambam writes in verse 16, When the High Court was functioning, there was no arguments which were ever sustained. All arguments were solved. Ella Whenever there was some kind of a doubt, you go to your local court. Now, the local court can only say one of two things. They can either say, we know the law, we have a tradition of the law, or they can say, we don't know the law. They cannot make a legislative, or for that matter, a landmark decision. If they know, omurlo, they say. In love, they say. Harishol, im otobetin, o im shluchen, olin lirushalayim vishol Lebatin shabah rabayit. They then go, or together with the people who raise the question, they go up to the court on the Temple Mount. Im yadu, omurlo. If they know the law, they say it. In love, hakol boim lebetin shal azara. They go again to the high court. Im yadu, im lav hakol boim lishkaragazit lebetin agadol visholim im hayyadavar shenolad bo If they knew the answer based on tradition, or that there already was legislation based on this law, then they immediately report this. But if this is not known, they they will discuss this Bisha Ad till everyone agrees. Oh Yamdulla Myan or they stand to be voted, to be counted. via, and you follow the majority. For and you tell the people this is the law. And then the Rambam finishes up and says, you know, this is not what we do today. And once the Beitin Agado stopped functioning, then arguments increased among the Jewish people. That one person says it's, it's impure, one says it's pure, each one gives their logical arguments, and one says it's allowed, one says it's not allowed, or not allowed, or not allowed and allowed, and that is the situation today. And that's, and that's the way the Raman tells us the law. So again, I, I, I would like to pause for a second and just think this concept of Eilu elu flies in the face of the verses we saw in Dvarim. It flies in the face of the way the Rambam explains the law, which means based on the real law, it's not a question of Eilu elu that everybody has a right to their opinion. Actually, no one has a right to their opinion. You have a right to no tradition, and if there is no tradition, then the court establishes a tradition. Where is this concept of Eilu from come from at all? Now the Rambam did a couple of interesting things here which again, without having seen the Gemara first we were not sensitive to them but what the Rambam did is his introduction to the Gemara is interesting and his conclusion of the Gemara is interesting because he took away the Lashon Hara and he turned it into uh, into shall we put it this way he turned it into factual issues rather than a narrative. And I, I will explain as we read now what the Gemara actually says. The Gemara says, Tanya Amar Biosi. originally, lo hayu Bin machok b'Yisrael. So marbin means they wouldn't last that long. The way the Rambam wrote it was actually was in very much clearer terms. Lo hayta machok b'Yisrael. And it means the same thing. The Rambam means that no machok it lasted. Now I go back to my original question. So why did this argument between Beit Hill and Beit Shammai go on for three years? Why didn't they get into the court? Why didn't they vote on it? Why didn't they use the process or the procedure which God tells Moshe, which we have in the Torah? The Ram tells us there was the high court and the other courts that sat in Jerusalem, and then in every city there were the local courts. If there was a necessity to ask, you would go ask the local court. If they had a tradition, they would report it. You would go to the larger court of the next city. We're not even larger. We go to the next city over. If they heard, Then you make your way to Jerusalem. If they had a tradition, they would say, And once I would say, well, this is my argument, and this is the other argument. This is how I understand it. This is how we understand it. Im Shamru If they had a tradition, they would say Vimlav. Notice the next two words. Boim Lishkaragazit. These and these. That's what reminds me of the Eluv Elu Jivim. But of course it's exact opposite. Eluv Eluboim Lishkaragazit. This is where the high court sat. They were, a question was put in front of them. If they knew, they said. And if not, they stood to be counted. If most said impure, it's impure. If most said pure, then it's pure. Now that's interesting. When the students of Hillel and Shammai became numerous, they did not properly serve their masters, whatever that means That's when the arguments increased, and it became as if there were two torahs I'm sorry for using it that torah. Now, that's very interesting because essentially what we've learned today is that the Torah tells us how to solve problems. The Torah gives us an apparatus how to solve problems. And now the Gemara itself is telling us that this lasted until the students of Hillel and Shammai. And now essentially we go back to this Eluva Elu Gemara, which is very imperfect. And now we realize how imperfect it is. It's so imperfect that they argued for three years until the voice comes out and says that these and these are the words of the living God or these are these are the living words of God, that this was actually the conclusion of the Gemara that told us the proper way to solve things, which essentially now we have to ask ourselves, why were things not solved properly? So I'm going to try to answer the the questions which we've raised. And, and again, I'm going to do something that I did last week, and that is I'm going to move over to a passage in the Yerushalmi, and it will provide us, well, let me put it this way. I believe it provides us with the answer, although the various people who've discussed this over the years I have not seen them sufficiently pay attention to what I'm about to point out. Now, as I said, once my book is out, then everybody can steal it and say, of course I noticed this before, and that's good. By the way, it's completely true that that happens, that once an idea comes down from heaven, then uh, it becomes obvious to people, even on their own, by the way. It's not just by, uh, by uh, looking at other sources. But th- This is, needs to be understood, this Yerushalmi. The Ushami asks what seems to be an irrelevant, irrelevant question. Tani, it was taught. He has the bat kol A voice comes out of heaven and says, These and these are living words of God. Aval halacha kebeit hila the law is according to Beit Hillel forever. By the way, that goes back to something I mentioned last time, this rumor that some of us have heard that when the Mashiach comes, the law will be like Beit Shammai. It does not say that in the Bible, and it does not say that in the Shalme. Rather, it says the law would be like Beit Hillel forever. Then it asks a question. Be'echan batkol. Where was the batkol heard? Now, when I first looked at this, the first time I saw this, I thought to myself, "What a strange question! And what's the answer going to be in the Beit Midrash, in the you know, by the Harabayit? I mean, what does it mean? Where does the?" And it says, "Rav Bibi of Yochanan Amar Yavne Yatsat Batkol." The Batkol came out in Yavne. So now, of course, the question is: So what is the significance of Yavne, and what did the Ushami just now try to teach us? What is this tradition that goes back to Rav Yochanan? Why? Did it tell us? Why did it ask the question, and what answer did it provide? So let's start off. First of all, you know we had Hill and Shammai, and they lived during the time of the Second Beit Hamikdash. When we hear the term "the students of Hill and the students of Shammai, we don't know exactly what the time frame is there, or which point in this. There was a continuum from the beginning to the end of the schools of Hill and Shammai. When exactly this whole episode took place? So let me start all over again. Could this episode have taken place during the time that we still had a Sanhedrin? That would fly directly in face with what I raised before as the problem that the Torah tells us how to solve a problem. You go to the high court and the high court then votes on it and that ends the discussion. Why does the discussion go on for three years? So now I get back to that. Yerushalmi says, well, where did this voice come out? It doesn't come out in Jerusalem. Now I have to ask, why? What happened to Jerusalem? Why don't they go to the Beit Hamikdash? And the answer is, and by the way, this, now, now you'll realize what the, the Rambam said. This: the answer is, what did the Rambam say at the very end? Instead of saying the Lush and Har about the Beit Hill and Beit Shammai, what did he say? He started off by saying, as long as the Beit Din Hagadol functioned, there wasn't arguments, and when the Beit Din Hagadol stopped to function, then arguments spread. So, where did the Rambam get this from? Well, first of all, it's logic. But secondly, I have no doubt that he saw the same Ushama that I just now cited. The Batko came out in Yavne. Yavne is not just a location. It's not just a place. Yavne is also a time in history. When, when Rav Yochan ben Zakkai, when he escapes from Yerushalayim and he meets the Roman general and he says, you know, what do you want? One of the things he says, give me Yavne and its ages. At that point, when the Beit HaMikdash comes to an end, and Yushalayim comes to an end, the sages move over to Yavne. And now here's the question, and this is not a simple question. And what exactly is the authority of the sages who are in Yavne? What do the Pasach say that we saw in Devarim? The Pasach said that when a question comes up, you should rise up and go up to the place that God has chosen we understand from tradition that place is Yerushalayim. What happens when you no longer have Yerushalayim? When Yerushalayim doesn't exist, when the Beit HaNagadol doesn't exist, so what do you do now? You can't go to Yerushalayim. So now what is the status of Yavne? Do the rabbis in Yavne have the same authority as the rabbis in Jerusalem or not? Now apparently, and I'm not going to answer that question of authority, My best answer will be it's a machloket, even though I believe the dominant opinion is they do not have that authority. But nonetheless, functionally, it didn't work. And that's what the Gemara is telling us. It doesn't work. During the time of Hillel and Shammai, it doesn't work. Now, it doesn't work. Something now comes and replaces it. What replaces, when I say it, what is the it in that sentence? Something replaces God's chosen plan for arguments to be solved. What was God's chosen plan? You go to the Beit HaMikdash, you go to the Sanhedrin, and they listen, they consider, and they say, do we have a tradition? we form of the tradition. If we don't have a tradition, then we vote on it, and we establish a new tradition. We decide the law. So something happened now that the law no longer could be decided, which again, the Rambam says, there's no longer be- there's no longer a functioning Beit Yenagadol. And when? During the time of Beit Hill and Beit Shammai. So Yavne, in the answer of the Yerushalmi, certainly through the prism of the understanding of the Rambam, is not just a location. It's a time period. And I want to now be very, very clear and explain what it is that I've been trying to say. You know, we've come back after thousands of years of not living as a country. And questions come up which we don't necessarily have a tradition on how to approach. Means, let's be honest. When was the last time we had an army? When was the last time we had questions on a national level of security issues regarding Shabbat, hospitals, and so on? Which means it's one thing for a Shomu Shabbos doctor to go and ask the rabbi, what do I do? Or for that matter, a Shomu Shabbos police officer, what do I do? Shomer Shabbos soldier, I don't know if you know this, Chaim Kinevsky, today by many is considered to be the Gadol Hadar, his father, the stipler, he was in the army, not the Israeli army by the way, long before the Israeli army. He was in an army in Europe, and he used to shoot his gun on Shabbos when he had to shoot. He would shoot it upside down because he felt towards was kalach, he nishinuy, so it shouldn't be on uh, the shooting the same way. And they say he was a perfect marksman shooting his gun upside down. Maybe for him it wasn't a shino, I don't know what to say. But um, that's an individual. What do you do when you have a whole army? What do you do when you have to guard a particular area? Which means there are questions that have now come up, but I want to go back a second. When we have a country, it is not the same thing as having a shtiebel. Okay? I will explain exactly what I mean. I met Mike all those years ago in, uh, in, in Ketir Torah, which was a very nice shul as a community, but it's a shtiebel. So what is the concern of a shtiebel? The concern of a shtiebel is they have enough herring, right? Enough herring and enough, uh, and, 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 and enough cholent and enough uh, kogel and, and maybe most importantly enough kishka. And then you need the, the single malts to go with it. But that's very different from the concerns of a country, which means by saying that this happened in Yavne, what, even though we may not have realized it when I first read it, Yavnim means galut, it means exile. And then you're going to say to me, what do you mean it means exile? They're still in Israel. Yes, but we're in exile in terms of being a national entity anymore. Having Yerushalayim, having malchut, having a Sanhedrin, having a government, having a Beit HaMikdash. And by the way, for people who cannot connect to on Tisha B'av, the loss of a Beit HaMikdash. they don't connect to Korbanot. I would strongly advise them to consider what I'm saying now in terms of the loss of the rest of the Temple Mount, including the Sanhedrin. Because when there was a Sanhedrin, there was no arguments. Why were there no arguments? Because anything that we disagreed upon, we came to a decision, which means the very opposite of the concept of Eluva Elu where everybody gets to have their own opinion. When you have a Sanhedrin, you don't get to have your own opinion. The reason you don't get to have your own opinion is because the Sanhedrin decides what is right. And all those other wrong opinions are no longer a part of this elu Eluva elu, elu only emerges when there's no longer a functioning Sanhedrin. And that's exactly what Yushami asks. That's what the Rambam precisely had said. The Yushami can ask, well, when did this voice come out? It's in Yavne. And that's what the Rambam says, is that as long as there is a functioning Sanhedrin, then there can't be any arguments. Why? Because then there is decision. If somebody sat on the Sanhedrin and said, listen, my minhag is against the Sanhedrin, and he rules against the Sanhedrin, he's put to death for that. That is called a Zakin Mamre. He has, meaning, don't you, again, I don't know if I'm being clear enough now, I sure hope I am. If somebody says my minhag is against the decision of the beitin Hagadol, he is put to death for that by being a rebellious elder. He has no right to rule against the Sanhedrin which means the power of the Sanhedrin is such that there are no dissenting opinions, even if there were dissenting opinions What it was voted upon. Once the court has accepted something, that's it. So I want to go back now. We are so used to a Judaism, which is a Judaism of different types of flavors and different types of actions, and maybe this is wonderful, and maybe this is really what got us through the Galut. Maybe this idea that that we needed different kinds of behavior. And, and, I, and I could talk Kabbalistically, and I can talk in terms of machshava, that there is a concept, the Arizal speaks of, that there are 12 different tribes, and he claims that each one had their own nusach of tefillah. And there's a 13th one, which he calls the nusach of the Ari, and this 13th one, and it's, by the way, it's based upon an earlier source, but again, he he twists it in a very, very interesting way, that this 13th Gate, as it were, is this gate of tefillah for all the others, and therefore there there were different ways of practicing, perhaps by certain things which are I'm going to call it more of a, of of a minhag variety. But now we think about this long exile that we've had, and you know, I, I uh, mentioned during the Shir last week, before I started, that that night my son got engaged. So my son, who comes from nice, good Ashkenazic stock became engaged to a girl who comes from very nice Yemenite stock and therefore her parents and grandparents and all of them as far back are Yemenites and our family as far back as you can go are uh, Ashkenazim. And, and how do I look at this? I look at this as that a historical accident took place 2,000 years ago and maybe even 2,400 years ago, whereby our family got broken up and we went to different places and now our family is becoming reunited again. That's what's taking place when we come back to Israel from all kinds of places. And maybe when some Jews lived in, in, in one particular place, they needed one kind of practice. They needed to have the space for the practice to develop in the way that they needed it. That doesn't work when we come back and we want to live as a country as opposed to as a shtibel. Because we want to live as a country. we can't. Somebody can't come up and say, listen, my menhug used to drive 65 miles an hour. And my man is to drive 30 miles. No, you can't do that. My man is to, is to park in front of it. No, no. There's no more. There are, we need laws. We need laws at some point. And once these laws, and I can't have, well, my man is, is that I think we need an army. And someone says, no, we don't need an army. No. There are rules. There are laws that you need to, to now exist, not just as a shtibel, or if you want to use a different terminology, no longer just as a reshut hayachid, but rather to exist as a reshut harabim, which means there's a different type of Judaism, which we have to then start asking these questions all over again. So, what exactly do I do in cases of? A government, or of a police, or of hospitals, where I do have questions that we don't necessarily have long-standing traditions how to deal with these cases of Judaism in Rishut Harabim. These are massive questions, and they're not easy. But on the other hand, where are we up to right now? As much as we've been brought up with, I don't know to call this something which is beautiful or cynical, where you can have a normative conversation, oh, I don't hold by that sure. oh, I do hold by that sure. What in the world are you talking about? Either the thing is kosher or it's not kosher. And of course I'm being a little uh, naive when I say that. What do you mean it's kosher or it's not kosher? According to who is a kosher? I went to this great place I had not been to before, but by, again, like everybody else, I was uh, hoarding before our big, uh, our big storm. And uh, I wanted to head to Machin Yehuda till I got near it. And I saw that everyone else in Israel was on the way to Machani Huda. So I turned around and went the other way and I went to the store and I, and it was great. You can get in, in one whole place, this Heksha or that Hesher or that Hesher or that. And it was great. All the different were were in separate glass, you know, behind the, you know, the plastic or whatever it is, uh, shelves and everything's very clear, but don't you realize that we're insane? What is it? What is, and, and, and by the way, for that point, that this was a Heksher of Sofer, and this was a Heksher of, okay, I, I won't quote all the names. Do you really think that the Chassam Sofer would have known about the different Heksher? I, again, I say this, either the Chassam Sofer himself would have said this is kosher, or this is not kosher. Like, what, what are we talking about? But we're so used to this. It's, it, it's something where it, it seems normal to us, and, and that's what's great is that insanity has become normal to us because we're orthodox Jews i mean i mean the, if you don't appreciate that that i don't know what else to say but the insanity has a limit and it wasn't what the torah had in mind it was this act, historical accident that took place where we sort of lost our tools to decide and now we came to this rabbit hole of, okay, so then you can have an opinion and you can have an opinion and everybody has their own opinion. And what we end up doing is, again, it's it works when you live in an isolated, independent area. You know, when, I'm going to use the, the East, even though now I have to speak in Yemenite terms, but in, in the Eastern European experience, when all those, all those shtetls and towns and all those... Uh, communities fell apart and then we moved to different places and maybe in south africa it was a little different because so many of you came from lita but i think about the shoal that i dove in where this fellow came from germany and this fellow came from hungary and this person came you know from from poland and this from Galicia, and, and so on and so forth and all of them in hug him that they had had as kids now what do we do that, and by the way, that's a very serious question, and it's. I'm, I'm not going to get into this right now, but it was one of the reasons why the Mishnah Brewer was the perfect book in the perfect time to be able to solve a lot of those kinds of questions because as opposed from traditional Ashkenazi Psak, if I really then ask, and I'm sorry if, if this is not being made clear to everyone, but if you really want to know what the difference is between the Machaber and the Ramah, the Machaber makes believe he follows the majority, which by the way, looks a little bit like this idea of the Sanhedrin. I'm following the majority, but he doesn't really follow the majority. The majority that he follows is what I would call halakhic aesthetics. What he does is he chooses a group that he's going to then choose the majority from, which is not an absolute, you know, and, and once you know who he chose, then you know how directed it is because let me just put it this way. He chooses the riff. He chooses the Rambam and he chooses the rush what do all three of them have in common? They all lived in Spain at one point of their life. Okay? Now, if you lived in Poland your whole life, like, for example, the Ramah, that may not speak to you that it will say, but look, I got a majority of the great rabbis. No, you got a majority of three particular rabbis. Very important. By the way, all those three also have something else in common. One of, one of the major aspects of the Riff's approach to learning was that he did not give in to the supremacy of the yeshiva in Bavel, and therefore the Rosh yeshiva in Bavel, and rather he gave his interpretations independent of the gaonim, which was absolutely radical when he did it. The Rambam is actually a student of a student of the Rif. It's also an interesting. I don't remember if I mentioned this at all last time, but if I didn't, I find this interesting. The Riff spent 75 years living in North Africa, writing his great commentary, being the most important rabbi at the time. And then, because of intrigue, he had to run away. He runs away, ends up in Spain. When he's in Spain, he meets a young man who's known as the Rimigash. And uh, at the age of 75, he starts all over again teaching somebody who he then later considers his greatest student. The Rimigash was was the teacher of a man named Maimon, who's the father of a man known as the Rambam. The Rambam said the Rimigash was the smartest man he ever met. So, and he and the Rambam himself claims that what he does in learning is he just follows the Riff. He's following his father's Rebbe's Rebbe. I mean, so therefore to say that we're gonna follow the Riff and the Rambam, you just now historically cut out most of the Gaonim from your conversation, which is a phenomenally important decision that you've made. But you say, no, but we do the majority. Majority of the Rif, of the Ramam and the Rush. And the Rush, of course, is originally from Ashkenaz, literally Ashkenaz, and then he moves to Spain. He moves to Spain also running away. I mean the Jewish history is also in- Dictated by anti-Semite to send us running to different places, and uh, he uh, he ends up in Spain. For his first couple of months he learns bechavrusa with the Rajba and ends up picking up a whole bunch of Sephardic Torah. And the, so the Rush and the Russian son is the tour. So when the when Rav Yosef Karo, who also was from Spain, and then ends up having to run away and ends up in Israel, Spain or Portugal, or ends up to Israel, but again the same general area. And he says, "Listen, we follow the majority. Majority of who are you following?" So there is this and by the way this aesthetic goes all the way down to Avadi Yosef. whenever he writes a tshuva most of this, most of what he says is on the side that wins but you know that it's aesthetics because he could have brought another 20 opinions from the other side that he knew that much but he but he doesn't and how does the ramo respond to the majority presented by Yosef Karo? He says yeah but our custom is to do like this and for so much of Ashkenazic history we followed our custom this is what our custom is Where our custom came from, wonderful question. Some claim our custom came straight from Eretz Yisrael and never went through Baville. And that's a lot of the differences between Ashkenazim and Svaradim. No, no, all of this is not the point. We have all these customs from place to place, and the and, the Sfardim, and, and when I say the Svaradim, I hope you all realize how superficial I'm being, because there's no such thing as the Svaradim. There is Aleppo, and then there is Iran, and there's Iraq, and the Persian. There is all kinds of different opinions. Ravadi Yosef tried to make believe that, no, we need one approach to this, but there were so many different approaches. Now, let me start all over again. What did the Torah want us to do? It wants us to have a Sanhedrin. It wants the Sanhedrin to make decisions. Now, there's, now, And if we did that, we would have unity. And we would all know what was kosher, what wasn't kosher. And if we, we would all know what we do on Shabbos. We would all know if you're able to make coffee on Shabbos, like I mentioned before, or not. Now, my only question is, if this would bring Mashiach, or if we need Mashiach, in order to be able to decide who should be on the Sanhedrin and who should have a right to vote because we would never possibly be able to get to a decision that we can agree on that. And by the way, I would have a suggestion how to do it because I once read a suggestion by Rav Ruvin Margolios, one of the more remarkable rabbis of the 20th century. He makes note of a term which is called the, the Misri de Ansheik Nesed Agdola, or for that matter, what's the difference between Ansheik the Men of the Great Assembly, as opposed to the Sanhedrin. So the, the, the Bavli tells us there were 120 members of the Anche Knesset Akdola. By the way, that's the reason why the Knesset today is 120 members. But what the Yushalmi says is there were 250 members. And then he notices this term that there is somebody who's called a remnant of the Anche Knesset Akdola. And here's the theory, that when they came back to build the second Beit HaMikdash, they could not agree who would sit. And therefore they gathered anybody and everybody who more or less was in the ballpark? There were 250 of them. Then, as they started to die out, that gets down to 120, and as they die out, it gets down to 71, and that's then, and then you have the Sanhedrin all over again. Which means maybe that's what we would need to do today. But by the way, the idea of a Sanhedrin terrifies some people. This is one of the things that absolutely terrified some of the early extreme Haredi leaders, because they said that if they're going to make it a Sanhedrin, they'll start changing Jewish law, and they'll bring people who are unworthy to do it. But that may very well be the case. But I do want us to understand that we live in a time right now where Halacha is unable to answer some of the most important questions that we have because we don't have the authority to deal with this because we don't have a Sanhedrin and that's what tar- that is what the Torah wanted us to do the Torah wanted there to be decisions it wanted us if and I want to be much clearer If we're going to live as a country, as a people, with a national identity, we need national institutions to solve national problems. And we don't have national institutions right now. We only have national problems, and therefore we have all of this going on where everybody does whatever it is that they want to do because of the lack of unity. So is it that unity will bring Mashiach? Is it only that Mashiach will bring unity? Which now I want to go back and wrap up and go back to what exactly happened with the school of Hill and, and School of Shammai. Let's go back to the to the Gemara, and then I'll show you what is suspected to have uh, taken place. Source eighteen says, that once we say these and these are the living words of God, Why was the law of Hillel, why is the school of Hillel established as law? And it gives us a very surprising answer. They're very easygoing and modest. They taught their own opinions and the opinion of Shammai, of Beit Shammai. But not only that, they explained the opinions of Beit Shammai before their own opinions. Now that's wonderful. But it doesn't sound very relevant. The let me just see if I, yeah the bnei yissachar here in source twenty four, he quotes he says bitsefer kisei david laharav Gadol the chida amur chazam neimazachu beit hil alachemod meishayu anavim viksha beit yosef pekala gamar the beit yosef yosef karo asked adum bnei she yesh ba mida tova because they're very nice people they have nice midot Lonashkiya nashgiyach are we going to ignore the truth? The Teretz He says something which is a little bit more miraculous that because they were modest they were able God gave them a present. And then he continues and he says Moshe was modest and Moshe was the greatest scholar so therefore they must have because their modesty they must have understood as well. The Tosva Rid explains it a little differently. He says it's methodology. Vishonen divrei v'divrei Beit Shammai, v'bnay pirish. This means how you shown them how to Beit Shammai. They taught Beit Shammai and they listened to their questions. They listened to their answers. They listened to their claims. U'medakdim behim. They were careful. They studied them. U'mitoch shamedakdim b'rayotayim b'rayot chobei Shammai. Omdim aburishadavar u'mechavnim aliba dehilchata. That because their methodology was superior and they studied their adversaries' opinions, they were able to arrive at the truth. <laughs> but Beit never bothered studying Beit Hillel. Because they only consider their own opinions. So there's one more thing I need to explain about this and then I think everything's going to make a bit more sense. Why would Beit Hillel study both opinions, or even better, why would Beit Shammai not? So I'm going to show you a couple of things. One, source 21, you should have many students. Omrim, they said, You should only teach somebody who's smart, from a good family, wealthy. You should teach everybody. There were many people from, well, I'll be nice in my translation, from very modest backgrounds. And they ended up becoming very great people. By the way, the word Ashir wise in the second edition of Ultra Rabbinathan says instead of Ashirim. If, you're not, if if this isn't clear let's look at the gemara over here in source 19 it says over here ki okay to beit hillel ruba beit hillel was the majority there was more of beit hillel but beit shammai mekhadettei beit shammai were sharper, they were smarter. So now I think we have most of the pieces to understand what happened. Beit Hillel opened up a yeshiva. They were modest, they were easygoing, and they opened up a yeshiva that anybody can come and learn. And Beit Shammai opened the yeshiva that only the elite can study. Beit Shammai, who were the elite, thought they only needed to consider the elite. You know, in American terms, this would be, Beit Shammai was an Ivy League school. Beit on the other hand, was open, open registration. Whoever wants to come and study, come on in. Now I ask the question again, why was it that Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai couldn't vote and come to a conclusion? Yushalayim destroyed. There's no longer a Sanhedrin. They're sitting in Yavne. They can't decide who gets to vote. Because Beit Shammai will not include the people of Beit Hillel, because Beit Hillel would include everybody. Beit Hillel says, you know, these are students as well. These are also people who have a right to vote. So there ended up being a breakdown in terms of who gets the right to vote. Is it everyone gets it or is only the exclusive get it? And now the differences in the schools of Beit Hill and Beit Shammai actually led us to this unbelievable point, that Beit Hillel ends up being correct because they study the other side as well. And by the way, this is absolutely a condemnation on some of us that we will only look to the right, and we will never look to the left. We will look to the yeshivas where the yarmulkes are bigger and the clothes are darker and the coats are longer, and we will consider them to be legitimate, even though we don't follow them all the time, but we're interested in what they say. But we won't look to the left of us where maybe the kipot are smaller or the clothes are colored or whatever else the case may be, because we don't consider them to be worthy. And it's a very, and I'm just making a social commentary based on what we just now read, that Beit Hillel was declared correct because they worked harder and they studied both sides, while Beit Shammai was smarter, objectively. But they only studied one side, and the voice comes down from heaven and said, yeah, this is legitimate and this is legitimate. The law is going to be like Hillel. Let's wrap this up, and then we'll open up for questions. Eilu elu was necessary to keep us as individual communities for 2,000 years. Eilu v'Eilu is tragic when we come to living today, especially in Israel, when we have challenges which are far beyond the imagination of rabbis' poskim from years ago. We deal, I mean, I personally have gotten questions, which again, rabbis in the past just could not possibly have imagined because these are questions which are of national concern. And the situation, therefore, requires national solutions, which we can't have right now, because religiously and politically it just is not going to happen that tomorrow was Sanhedrin, which will be accepted, will come in. But I want you to realize at least that's why we still need to fast on Tisha just in case you think that we have Yerushalayim and we have the Harabayit B'Adena whether we do or we don't is a wonderful question. But we it's not. It's not The Harabayit is not there. It's not just the Beit HaMikdash is missing. It's that the Sanhedrin is missing because that is something which could help create unity then we would not be arguing among all kinds of things that we argue about we would have an approach we would have an understanding we would have decisions but right now we live in a time where the galut perhaps is over but we're still living based upon tools that were used in the galut and were created for the galut and are not the way that we were supposed to live as jews certainly not living in our own national homeland certainly not living in the land of Israel today. Any questions you have, I'm happy to try to answer.